This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. The award-winning singer and songwriter Bruce Springsteen once said, The past is never the past. It is always present, and you better reckon with it in your life and in your daily experience, or it will get you. It will get you really bad. Well, our guest today, Mr. Les Raker, the director of the Rural Heritage Museum at Mars Hill University in Mars Hill, North Carolina, is helping us to reckon with our history through the work that he's doing at the museum. Join us today for a conversation with Mr. Les Raker about history, the museum, and its current exhibit on the history of the Civil War in the Southern Highlands. Marcus and I will be back in a moment. Again, this is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters, and as usual, I'm happy to be here with you all in the audience. Glad you all are joining us again. But as always, I'm always happy to be here with my brother, Dr. Marcus Harvey. Marcus, how is it going, brother? <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. I'm working feverishly to stay afloat over at the university, but I think I'm managing. How about how, how about no, yourself? I know you, you're always staying afloat. <laughs> you know, for our listeners out there, I just want to say it. You know, what do I refer to you as? You're a monster. Oh, no, right? he no, is, that's he, you. He's always producing work, you know. His office, you know, you know, writing is just rolling out of there all the time. How do you do it, brother? I don't know. Maybe I'm just a glutton for punishment. Maybe that's the best way to explain it. It's incredible discipline, but I know that uh, you're producing some really good stuff. You know, we've mm-hmm. talked about uh, some of the things that you've done in uh, in a previous show, but uh, you're always on top of it, producing new things. I mean, you know, what's going on on the continent, brother? Yeah, well, um, I, I, the, the latest thing I'm working on that is actually a conference paper. Um, that addresses the problem of decolonizing the study of religion in Africa. Mm. So I only have a few weeks to complete that. So um, if, I, if I look a bit loopy over the next few weeks, you know why. <laughs> well, I understand. But here we are again. We're going to yeah. have another conversation about the Civil War, but we're going to talk about it from the perspective of a museum curator. I mean, mm. you know, Marcus, I discovered that uh, to be able to curate an exhibit is very difficult mm. work. And, um, I mean, you have to make choices and decide what to include, what not to include. So I'm looking forward to talking to Les about that. But, you know, it, we started the show out with this uh, this quote by Bruce Springsteen, of all people, you know, that the past is never the past. I think that this is an interesting uh, statement that uh, Mr. Springsteen made. Yeah, and I think very prescient in, in, in a number of ways. I think oftentimes, uh, you know, we are we don't we're conditioned to not take history seriously. Mm-hmm. I think that all this is something of of, of, of a of, of the past is it's, it's irrelevant um, but I think uh, one of the one of the points that has come up in this show uh, which I think is makes uh, mr. Uh, Raker's visit very apropos mm-hmm. is that uh, just like uh, a museum exhibition is curated uh, memory <laughs> is also very much a curated phenomenon yeah, yeah. so and you know you and I've talked about this civil war so I hope that you all in the audience are not getting tired of this subject but <laughs> based on what we've heard and I and, and Marcus I says hopefully this is not just us as historians are as professional scholars mm-hmm. that we're drawn to it but it seems to me that that the public in general, especially here in the American South, that this war, as Robert Penn Warren said, is our American oracle. We're drawn to it. We we come back to this time period. Not so much Reconstruction, which we're in the sesquicentennial of that now, but this Civil War. Again. Well, and, and, and I think the argument can be made, and others have made a similar argument, David Blight, for example, that really I think the, the core of American identity pivots 
really in this period, right? right. Uh, Civil War, Reconstruction, whether or not <laughs> folks want to admit it, mm-hmm. uh, that really is a is is a pivotal moment in terms of the um, the, con- the the construction or reconstruction, I should say, of of American identity mm-hmm. as it exists even in 2017. Right. So you can't really understand, I think. The quandary of American identity without going back to these two periods in American right, history. Right. And that's a good way to kind of take us out of this segment as we get ready for Mr. Les Raker and Marcus and I will be back in just a moment. Well, again, this is the Watterson Harvest Show. Thank you all for staying with us and for joining us today here at Blue Ridge Public Radio on 107.9. This is the Watterson Harvest Show. We're jumping into a conversation again about the Civil War, America, America's Oracle, as Robert Penn Warren said. But we're talking today with Mr. Les Raker. We're very happy to have him here. And as again, as we said earlier, he's a, he is the director of the Royal Heritage Museum at Mars Hill University. If you haven't been out there, you have to go out and visit and he's going to talk about that in just a few minutes but let's just welcome him here Les we're glad to have you join us I am really glad to be here with both of you You, we've had uh, the opportunity to have conversations with you before so this is like you know an old friend coming in to join (laughs) us again I feel like you're my old friend (laughs) so thank you for coming in you You know Les you know we we've talked about it we'll talk in a few minutes about uh, the the title of this current exhibit that you have going on. But I, I would like for our listeners to hear a little bit about the museum itself. The museum, it's at Mars Hill University. Can you tell us, you know, how long has the museum been there? How long have you been there? What is your mission with right. this particular museum? Well, the building was constructed in 1918 as the college's first library. And uh, it existed as that for quite a while until uh, they built another library, needed more space. And it's a uh, stone building, and was added on to in the 1920s. And it's very solid, and uh, as I'll tell anybody, I'm, I'm ready for a second story. <laughs> We're always ready to, look, to grow in museums. But um, uh, it has this revered history. It was part of the administration offices for a while. Uh, the Bailey Mountain Cloggers practice there. The campus radio station was there. Mm-hmm. But in the 1970s, my predecessor and still my very good friend, Richard Dillingham, organized a museum there, which he called the Rural, Her- Rural Life Museum. Okay. And it was about rural life in, in the southern Appalachians, and particularly the late 19th, early 20th century farm life. And that's really what that was about. And he assembled a couple of collections, uh, and then other things have been given in subsequent years of artifacts of cultural patrimony of the mm-hmm. of the South, uh, people living in the mountains, right. primarily. Um, and he ran that for quite a while, some 20, over 20 years. And the building needed, started deteriorating. It needed work on it. The roof was leaking, et cetera. So they moved everything out of there, and he decided that he was done doing the museum, although he had other duties on campus as a cultural historian. And they raised money and fixed it up, and then they did a search, and they found me. Mm-hmm. And I came here from Texas uh, running a big museum down there. So this is the uh, – I don't know what the opposite of your salad years are, but this is my dessert right. years. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I've had a lot of experience with museums. But very glad to pick up the mantle there and then redo it. And uh, we reconfigured the the inside, and we decided to also change the name to Rural Heritage Museum. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, you hear that term so much in yeah. other museums even. There's one in Western Carolina. There's others. The heritage is, a, is an appropriate term because right. it really is broad in what we can mm-hmm. talk about. Uh, because we do address the Cherokee, we address African Americans. We don't just address the um, Scots Irish and, right. and other descendants. So we decide, decided, and with the administration to uh, come up with a series of changing exhibitions, and that's what we do. We do one to three a year, or usually two to three a year. Excuse me, mm-hmm. and. Um, um, on a variety of topics right. that relate to the heritage of the region. Yeah, some yeah. hard work. Yeah, and this is this is so interesting, Les. Um, so the current exhibition, as, as referenced earlier, is interestingly titled The Civil War in the Southern Highlands, A Human Perspective. Uh, I think this represents a history that it's probably fair to say is, is understudied um, yeah. among among historians. Could you, could you talk a little bit about this about this particular um, exhibition? Yeah, and Les, I have to say here before you get started too. Mm-hmm. You know, Marcus uh, gave us the title of it. I'm I'm particularly curious about uh, the tag, a human perspective. You know, to, to hear what you have to say about that. That really caught my eye when when I saw this. Well, we you know when you talk about the Civil War, you get uh, a lot of uh, latter day interpretations of the facts um, and. When I went to school in the history books, it was really about battles and about mm. it was about surrenders and and uh, et cetera and uh, what it was you know what it was over, but not about the people who fought in it or didn't want to fight in it, and that was particularly true in the mountains. Uh, what we talk about in our exhibition is the whole notion, and you've heard this, of brother against brother. Right, right. We talk about people really revolting against the Conscription Act of 1862, which was for the whole state, every able-bodied individual, male individual from 17 to up, um, I don't even know what the maximum is, uh, to tell you the truth, but uh, uh, was required to fight in the war. Even freed African Americans, Africans, were required to fight, mm-hmm. and we talk about those that were because they were free men. They were they had to fight for the Confederacy. Right. Um, we uh, have discovered in our scholarship, and I, I had f- five people in my curatorial kind of committee because it was a lot of work pulling this together. Worked on it for over a year. We have discovered new scholarship, letters from people who were fighting, from people after the fact, and other uh, bits of information that expand upon the apocryphal information that we normally associate. When you were talking earlier, before I came on, I was listening about the whole idea of curating history mm-hmm. and the how people identify and perhaps... Um, come up with their own interpretation in a way um that's what we had to fight with this because it we focus a lot on madison county and in madison county there are uh, conflicting points of view Mm -hmm. on the battles that were the one particular battle that massacre that occurred there and we tried to dig to the heart of it and you were talking about uh shelton the shelton laurel massacre shelton laurel massacre Mm -hmm. and that's a a central part of our exhibition but there are many human sides to that and Mm -hmm. i'd love to talk to you about it i know we have limited time but the uh in terms of who who was blamed for giving the um orders for the massacre we found new information to kind of clear the person that's normally blamed and um but we have letters from women to their husbands and 
talking about, you know, they respond back. You know, it's a long time till they get the letters back and forth. But we have one particular, this woman who said, well, I, you told me in your letter that you didn't have anything to eat. He's on the mm-hmm. front lines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She says, oh, well, I wish you were at home. I'd make you some beans. Right. She almost had nothing at home either. Right. right. And she, she said, I want you home as, as, as much as I possibly can wish it. We have another letter, an original letter, um, that we got from uh, um, the Swannanoa Valley Museum, uh, written by a man who was at uh, Camp Fayetteville. 1861, who um, wrote to his brother, basically talking about conditions in his camp, how people were dying next to him every day from disease, from starvation. Uh, He didn't have anything. But then in his letter, he kids his brother. He says, well, no, you said in your one letter that you've been hunting up on uh, the Tow River for deer. Now, don't don't hunt them all because I plan to come back and hunt with Mm -hmm. you, with my friend. Of course, he didn't make it. But we have... We have objects in the exhibition that are about everyday life. We have beautiful quilts, wedding dress mm-hmm. from 1860s, um, other things. We have things made by slaves. Mm-hmm. To put it in a kind of a human pers- perspective, perspective that way, right. uh, show a human side. In fact, when you come in the door, you don't see any guns or Confederate flags or anything. People probably think they're in the wrong show. So this is really a story about the home front and what's going on. And, but it's front. also about the battle, about those that are marched off and how – we tell the story how people turn switch sides. We ha- there's we tell the story about uh, one woman. Uh, her name is Sarah Blaylock, uh, and she joined the Confederate Army with her husband, pretending to be his brother, mm-hmm. and fought with him alongside. And then near the end of the war, switched sides. She switched to the Union side, and she became um, a. Um, a, f- a fighter, a raider, right, right. like Kirk's Raiders, and she joined him and was. I is we have these stories of people changing sides. Of uh, it's very fluid, mm-hmm. and it's something hard, sort of hard for me to understand, and people this, these days to understand how right. they could do that. Right, right, right. Um, so it's interesting, Les, because as you as you're talking about the, a couple of things that come to my mind. First, I'm wondering because we've had a number of conversations on the show with people with guests uh, about Zebulon Vance, and and you talked about the conscription law, and so I'm curious. Of how you deal with Vance in the uh, in, a, in the exhibit, if he is a part of of, of the we, exhibit, we talk about him, and right. I know you're a, really a scholar. Whatever you, Vance, um, you're the go-to person in this region about him, and well, I, I believe yeah. everything you say. But um, um, we talk about him because he's right there, kind of in charge of the whole thing, and he's basically writing letters saying, you know, um, take it easy on my home front. Bros, uh, the people back in the mountains, right, because right. you know they're starving and so on and so forth. Don't treat them too harshly. Mm-hmm. We have quotes from him who say that. But one of the things that happened before the war, both Vance and uh, a man named Merriman, uh, attorney, uh, were litigating against the uh, Keith family, and uh, James Keith was a clerk of courts in Madison County. His father owed money to some um, individuals, and Merriman was the solicitor trying to extract the money. And then the father died, and it was on Keith's shoulders to pay the money back. And Keith wouldn't do it. And so the war started, and Keith was um, a colonel in the, in the 65th, uh, um, and he went to Shelton Laurel, 
and Merriman blamed him for firing for ordering the firing. But we have documents that show that Merriman was not telling the truth. No. That uh, it was it said even in in Madison County that Keith was court-martialed. Well, he wasn't. He was in charge of uh, battalions all the way to the end of the war. He was, however, um, arrested in 1868. He, along with a fellow, his cousin named Allen, and Allen uh, didn't, uh, or he, he was, uh, they posted a, um, a arrest warrant for him, but he escaped to Arkansas. Keith spent time in the Buncombe County Jail, but mysteriously escaped after writing letters saying that I didn't do it. You know, he admitted to torturing women, but he didn't order the firing, and he blamed it on Allen. And we think that it was Allen, his cousin, who did who it, actually did, who it. actually gave the orders. Okay, okay. Wow. And we have letters from the twelfth, uh, from a Georgia regiment, and and that uh, were kind of indicate that that was the case. Well, it's it's interesting because this story is told over these last hundred fifty years that Keith was in charge, what, which is what we brought out is maybe he wasn't. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. Well, as we recently had on the show, Steve Nash, who wrote a book, Reconstruction's Ragged Edge, where uh, he, he really sort of makes the case for um, the political dynamics in this region during Reconstruction um, being very distinct um, when compared to um, to that of other regions. And that leads to, that leads me to, to, to wonder uh, what you, what the research that you've conducted for this exhibition has yielded in terms of uh, how the Civil War experience in this region differed from the experience in other regions. I think yeah. they remembered it a lot longer. In fact, they still, it's like it happened yesterday. Wow. wow. And it's very, it was very personal. And this is a thing I can't understand is that the people who were fighting in the war in the confederate group that came up from marshall to do this would torture and kill their own relatives there's their best friend's grandmother and how could people do that mm-hmm. you know it was a real insensitivity but they this gung-ho you know 18 to 25 year old male that kind of gets all revved up and does this stuff but there's a, all of that that takes place You're that right. just we found remarkable Mm-hmm. We we read these letters, read the stories over and over, and that's a real different for this war. Uh, I'm not talking about Reconstruction here, but mm-hmm. just the war, the war itself, because it's felt after the fact. We found that people who f- were on opposite sides ended up getting married at the end of the war. Uh, that was totally a surprise right. to me. Um, how how they could reconcile? Wouldn't you just be mad forever? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have a then we have two brothers by the name of Buckner named uh, the the Buckner Gap was named after them. One fought for the Confederacy and one fought for the Union. Not, initially, they both signed up for the Confederacy, but one switched sides. Well, they didn't speak for the rest of their lives until they were like 102 at a birthday party. We have a photograph of the two of them together reconciling. Well, it's it's interesting, Liz, because it's a, it's a mess. It's, you know, it gets very complicated. And Steve really shows that, Marcus. I was thinking about that as you as you brought that up. I was thinking about Steve as well and the work that he does that he shows that, you know, especially the messiness of the politics uh, after the war was over, which is highly influenced by what happens through the war. But, Liz, you made a point here that I find very interesting interesting because you said in you know in response to Marcus's uh, question 
about what makes this region so different and remembering it a lot longer because you know that's what historians have said about southern memory in general that southerners when you compare southerners to northerners that southerners have a tendency to remember things much longer they hold mm-hmm. on to that memory uh, much longer and then I think you know I may not be um, referencing the the right historian here, but I think that I am C. Van Woodward, who is one of these major uh-huh. major historian of the American South, that he said that people who lose tend to to remember a lot. <laughs> that that has something to do to do with how well, they the victor remember. tells the story or gets to write the the history books and in, in many cases mm-hmm. through history, but but the loser does that. But I, I think, and to add to what you just said, in the South, there's a lot of storytelling. That doesn't take place mm-hmm. in the North, and that continues. And it's family stories. Right. This is very personal for people who fought, and and for mm-hmm. the Shelton Laurel area of Madison County, it's for some people it just happened yesterday. Right, right. That's and, interesting. And this was, and I have to say, these were Confederate soldiers who went and massacred a group of thirteen um, boys, older men and boys, who weren't even fighting. Um, in retaliation for a group coming from Shelton Laurel to Marshall to steal salt. Right. Because right. the Confederates were hoarding Hold the salt it. because they needed the salt to preserve their meat. Right. It wasn't for a spice, but mm-hmm. to preserve their meat. And they would die if they didn't have it. And so they went and stole it. And so that was retaliation. But the people in Shelton Laurel were, they called them Tories, they called them Unionists, they called them Lincolnites. And many pockets of people in the mountains were not Confederates. Right. In fact, they didn't want anything to do with it. And I have a theory about that, mm-hmm. that when the Scots-Irish and others came down to um, here from, um, from Scots- Scotland and Ireland down to Philadelphia through the wagon road of Virginia down here, they were being chased by and opposing the English. They helped form the U.S. of A., and they were very proud of the United States of America, and they did not really take kindly to separating themselves right. from the America, from this country that they fought to form. Okay. And I think that's one, the people mm-hmm. in the mountains especially, they didn't want to start a new confederacy or whatever. They were unionists. Right, they right. believed in the in the cause of, of the United States. All right. Yes, I mean, you know, and I'm, a number of things that are coming up here, and I'm thinking, you know, I haven't had a chance to come out to see the exhibit yet, Please but do. I do want to come out and see it. Um, I'm wondering, and maybe maybe you've had an opportunity to have him there, uh, Charles Frazier. You know, I think as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about Charles Frazier, uh, the author of Coal Mountain. Coal Mountain. It'd be nice um, to get him. Yeah. And so, Charles, let's see, how would Charles respond to a visit? At, at I the think museum? he would respond positively because uh, so many people have told me, well, this is if you see Coal Mountain or if you read it, this is very much in line with the kind of the character of the people mm-hmm. uh, that the way he describes them. Yeah. And and less, uh so 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 the so the exhibit's been up now for a while. How how are visitors responding? They're responding uh, very positively. Your opinion, okay. and I didn't know starting out. How, <laughs> how, you know that we opened uh, the weekend after Charles. Yeah, you know, do a risk yeah, as you get ready to go into this. I have to say this: we've had a number of conversations about uh, the Civil War on the show, mm-hmm. and we had uh, David Winslow. Uh-huh. Uh, David has been here for a conversation, and you know, David is helping to spearhead the uh, establishment of the North Carolina Civil War History mm-hmm. Center uh-huh. in Fayetteville, and I. Love 
love the way David described the Civil War. He said it is like a, uh, like a train wreck that you cannot, <laughs> you know, is like the world's greatest train wreck, uh, the world's largest train wreck that you just cannot, you know, you, you can't look away. You can't look but, away. You uh, can't untangle it either. Yeah. But you don't know what you're going to get when you do these things. No, so, you don't. But yeah. people misinterpret. But we don't take sides. We just present evidence, which is what we do in a museum. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we do our research and we have letters and we have a lot of original documents that we've scanned in so you can read it for yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so it's nothing that we're interpreting um, okay. from our, from our own point of view. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, how long will the will the, will, will the exhibition be in place? It will be up until March fourth. March fourth. Okay? Okay. I'm keeping it up for six months because these mm-hmm. kinds of things. Well, we worked on us for for a long time, <laughs> right, right. so we wanted it up for a while. But right. uh, we we're getting a lot of people. We've had over a thousand people see it in just these first month mm-hmm. and a half or so, and they continue to come in. And we're free of charge too. And uh, okay. if you're coming from Asheville, you just take 19 Future 26, right. 19 North to Exit 11, and it's just a mile and a half to the left. Well, this I'm I'm curious because we in other uh, conversations that we've had about the Civil War and we've talked with Dr. Gordon McKinney. Right. And he has made he's made the point too about well, you know, and we had we've had David Blight on the show as well. And David has talked about these three interpretive models mm-hmm. for the Civil War itself. You know, you have the Northern interpretation, you know, the Northern Unionist interpretation of it. You have the Southern uh, Lost Cause interpretation of it. And then there's that third, the third leg to this, which is the emancipationist, the African-American emancipationist right. interpretation, which has been largely suppressed in all mm-hmm. of these conversations that people have been having about the war. And so I'm curious here, well, one last question, because time is we're coming down on uh, uh, close to uh, the end of the show here, but I'm wondering how African Americans are, are you getting a good response from the African American community? Yes, they, they are responding quite well, and you know our campus has uh, over 25 percent of our student body is African American, mm-hmm. and uh, we they come and see it, and we have people from the community from Asheville, mm-hmm. and um, uh, yes, they're responding really well. The and there we have a film that we produced ourselves that that starts the show off it's about 23 24 minutes and uh, so we have images of african americans and as i mentioned uh, to you um some free african peoples they weren't african americans yet mm-hmm. uh, were were obliged to fight for the confederacy because they were free right others um chose to f- or were able to fight for the union and mo- and move north and still others stayed right, stayed put with their well, master and, and afraid of retaliation. Right. And so that's the way we tell the story, because that's true. That's what happened. Well, Les, we want to thank you for taking the time to come in here and talk about this. And um, this, you know, I do, I have a great appreciation for the work that you all do as curators, because it's not easy work to make a decision about what you're going to show and what you won't show. But this is, I think, it's an important um, an exhibit that you have there and I hope, especially since we, we're just coming out of the sesquicentennial of the Civil War anyway, right. and we're in the sesquicentennial of the of the uh, of American Reconstruction. So Marcus and I know, I think I speak for both of us when I say that we want to encourage our listeners to have a take the opportunity to come out to the museum and visit this exhibit while you have it there. Definitely. So we want to thank you for coming in and for joining us. And Marcus and I will come back in just a few minutes for a few closing thoughts. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
Well, again, this has been the Waters and Harvey Show, and uh, this has been an interesting conversation, Marcus. I think we have we continue to talk about the Civil War, but I, I guess I am um, like as uh, Robert Penn Warren would say, it is it it is an oracle for me. I can't look away. Yeah, <laughs> I, you know, and I, I continue to be amazed at how how messy and fair memory is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I really I really wasn't aware prior to talking to to Les. Uh, of of the conscription act of 1862 so there are people who were forced to, to fight, fight. Right. um in this in this war which resulted in the death of over 600,000 people. people so just yeah. memory is just such a messy affair you talk about that conscription law then uh this is this is another component that really complicates the history of people it like does. Zebulon Vance because mm-hmm. Vance Vance is very protective of North Carolinians um with mm-hmm. this conscription law and so it this is it just really shows us and reminds us once again that history is it's just so complex. It is indeed, and so I think that it's important for our, for our listeners to just remember uh, that memory is something that that is that is never simplistic or or reducible to any single narrative. Well, thank you, brother, for closing us out again, and so thank you all for joining us. And Marcus, again, as we normally do, want to remind you that the Waters and Harvey Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina, and you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, on the BPR mobile app, and on iTunes and Google Play. And we do hope you will follow us and get in touch on. Facebook and Twitter and Marcus and I will see you all or be talk to you all next time. All right. Thank you. Thank you.